Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest and final, not final episode, but final event episode inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Anities, and alongside me is my co-host, Josh Molina. Josh, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Phil. I can't believe we've come this far in this series. It's been so amazing to relive all of these episodes with you. And I got to say, this card... You know, when in retrospect, this is exactly the kind of card you would have expected Strike Force to go out on because it's a real mishmash. And I know we're going to get into it, but yeah, it's it's pretty cool to be here talking about the the final show after we've relived so many of the episodes. On honestly, in a lot of ways, it is really a fitting end to the promotion because of where. I guess how far the promotion had fallen in the last couple of years and to be at a, in a situation where they were at one point rumored to have four title fights and we ended up with one that was, in my opinion, not the most exciting fight, very ta- tactical, strategic affair. And to kind of go out on that, it's just kind of a meh, kind of a whimper, you know, rather than going out with a bang. And uh, But anyways, we'll get to that. I want to welcome all of our listeners inside the Hexagon about walking through the major events, fighters, and milestones of Strike Force, which was a very important and innovative MMA promotion that existed from 2006 until 2013. And on the episode today, we will be discussing the final Strike Force event, Marcord versus Safadine, which took place January 13, 2013, at the Chesapeake Energy Arena in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. The main event saw Nate Marquardt put on his put his newly won welterweight title on the line against top contender Tarek Safadine. The co-main event, Daniel Cormier would return to take on the little-known Dion Starring, while Josh Barnett, the other heavyweight Grand Prix finalist, would battle lightly regarded Nandor Guelmino. We'd also see Mike Kyle and Gegard Musasli finally lock up after the fight had previously been postponed three separate times. And Jacare Souza would face Ed Herman, the only contracted UFC fighter ever to appear inside the Strike Force hexagon. The undercard would be absolutely stacked, too, with names like Tim Kennedy, Pat Healy, Hodger Gracie, Ryan Couture, KJ Nunes, and Anthony Smith all appearing. I want to mention Inside the Hexagon is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You can check out their other shows on the network at evergreenpodcast.com. All right, the most recent Strike Force event, and this is this comes with an asterisk because it wasn't supposed to be the most recent Strike Force event at this point, but man, how things had changed since the last event, which was Rousey versus Kaufman, headlined by Ronda Rousey and Sarah Kaufman in a bantamweight title fight dominated by Rowdy Ronda, and it had pulled strong ratings. The thought was that Strike Force might continue despite whispers to the contrary. However, things truly began to crumble for the promotion. Rousey migrated over to the UFC, and that might have been the final nail in the coffin, but injuries to champions Gilbert Melendez and Luke Rockholt, as well as a as well as former UFC heavyweight champion Frank Mir, who had agreed to become the first UFC contracted fighter to fight in strike force, he was going to take on Daniel Cormier in a one-off bout. All of those injuries result and, and migrations and all that resulted in canceled fight and events, further clouding things. And it really just became just too much to overcome, and Strike Force was officially shuttering its doors. I did want to mention I read an excellent article from Damon Martin from MMA Weekly uh, on this situation called The Slow Death of Strike Force. And it really backs up, Josh, what you and I have discussed that Zufa buying Strike Force in 2011 really spelled. Uh, the end of the promotion strike force was not making enough, enough money. And as we've discussed at length during the run of this podcast, uh, Scott Coker, you know, needed a financial backer, needed more support. And it just wasn't there. And Zufa ended up being that backer, but at the cost of really the promotion, the life of the promotion. And we'd seen this several times before, Josh, I think you 
had told me about the photo with Dana White with the tombstone with like pride and WEC and affliction and the WFA, I think like all, you know, like listed on that tombstone. I'd never seen it before. Uh, but, but, you know, add, add strike force to that list. And as Damon wrote in his article, quote, why pay to keep a separate promotion alive with a different fight roster, different employees, different TV deals and, and different schedules when the UFC is a thriving monster of a business. And the simple answer is you don't. And Zufa didn't. And before you respond, uh, you know, this is, this is the case in every sport or, you know, whatever. I mean, we saw this when WWE bought WCW, uh, you know, they tried to run them se- separately. So I mean, so the plan was to completely separate them and have their own TV and all that stuff. But, you know, you have an image or I'm sorry, you have a vision of how your product is supposed to be. Why would you, have two of the same product a and B, if you're going to run something different, why, like, you know, you have a vision for that. Like it's just, it doesn't make sense, which, you know, we're not going to cross over to pro wrestling too much into this, but it's recently announced that uh, Tony Khan has bought uh, ring of honor and he's going to book both AEW and ring of honor. And as excited as I am to see ring of honor come back, it's kind of like, how are you going to run two different products with two different visions when you're the same, I just don't get it. So this thing was dead in the water from the beginning. It's just never worked. W, uh, uh, UFC has not bought, I don't think, I can think of any promotions recently and and probably hopefully have learned their lesson at this point. But Josh, what are, you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, everything you said, Phil, is correct. We saw Vince McMahon purchase all the territories back in the 80s and expand it. And that's really what happened here. This was sort of the final big one uh, that uh, Dana White and the UFC were able to buy. It was no longer the UFC anyway, as we had been talking about. And just word to anyone out there working for a company, (laughs) working in the MMA world, sports world, if your company is purchased by another company, there's a very good chance... (laughs) That the company you work for is no longer going to exist as you knew it. And a lot of people are going to be laid off. Some people are going to be saved, but it will never be the same. And we saw that. And it wasn't all Coker's fault. I know the Silicon Valley Sports and Entertainment Group that were also the owners of Strikeforce, they were ready to get out of the, the MMA business as they saw ratings decline. And, you know, who else is going to buy a MMA promotion but the UFC? Or Zufa, so it's 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 uh it's America, it's capitalism, it's of course you're gonna have the biggest fish swallow everyone else, and that's what happened here. Yeah, it's it, which is unfortunate for for fans because I think it's always good to have competition. It's always good to have it. You know, there was no more exciting time in wrestling history than the Monday Night Wars because. You never knew who was going to show up. It forced both promotions to be more creative and to push themselves. And while, you know, strike force, if, you know, if anything was just a thorn in the side at most when it came to the UFC, you know, it, it, it I mean, it forced uh, Danny to pay attention to women's MMA and some of the fighters that went on to win gold or, or at least become stars in the UFC that it gave them a platform to be able to do that. So there were a lot of success stories or there was, you know, definitely success there, but yeah, once once the decision was made that hey, we gotta you know we're gonna cut this loose. That was that was the beginning, of the end. But at bottom line, it's all Jake Shields' fault. Let's yeah, it's real. really it really. I mean, <laughs> God, it's hard not to point to one specific thing and go, you know what? Uh, it, like it's. I mean, it's hard to point to one specific thing. But if I had to, 
I mean, that coupled with, you know, essentially getting them thrown off CBS coupled with uh, Fedor losing. And, you know, I mean, that was the one differentiator besides women's MMA. That was really the one different differentiator that Scott Coker and Strikeforce had. And, and that that's why, uh, you know, pro wrestling, you can book your guys, you know, you can, you pick who wins. It's a, uh, it's harder in MMA <laughs> because you can't, you know, and, and so to have him go down and defeat like that, uh, I, I really, uh, there was just a few things there that just really just became too much. So, uh, I, you know, there's a quote from, uh, the death of WCW, uh, DVD that WWE did like 15 years ago or whatever it was. And, uh, uh Rick Flair said that if they had stayed, if the promotion had stayed East of Baltimore or something like that, but if it basically had stayed in the mid Atlantic, the Southern Southeastern part of the States, they'd still be in business. I, you know, it's, you can make a case if, if Coker had not decided to try to expand, if he had just kind of stayed more in the Western United States, that maybe they could have just really built this massive rabid fan base. I mean, you know, there's a lot of what ifs, but regardless, you know, here we are. And so anyways, as we just mentioned, there were canceled events in between Rousey versus Kaufman and Sar- Marquardt versus Safadine, two of them to be exact, exact. And we'll quickly go over them here. Strikeforce Melendez versus Healy was scheduled to take place on September 29th, 2012 at the Power Balance Pavilion in Sacramento, California. Healy had earned this title shot on the heels of five straight wins in Strikeforce. Also on the card, we were supposed to see Josh Thompson take on Karis Fodor, as well as former one-night middleweight tournament winner George Santiago returned from a nearly five-year absence from Strikeforce to battle Quinn Mulhern. Other names you'd recognize scheduled for this card include Amanda, Amanda Nunez taking, I'm sorry, Amanda Nunez and Kat Zingano, which they weren't huge names at that point, but obviously became big names. And then Mike Kyle and George Grigel were supposed to be there as well. Unfortunately, Melendez suffers a knee injury in training and had to pull out. Melendez was replaced by Jorge Masvidal and later Kurt Holobaugh, but without the champ on the card, Showtime opted not to air the event, which caused Scott Coker to cancel it. There just was not enough strength on that card for strike for uh, Showtime to to go on without Gilbert Melendez in the title uh, main eventing it. So so that got canceled in September, and then in November, Strikeforce Cormier versus Mir was scheduled to take place November third. 2012 at the Chesapeake Energy Arena in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. The main event was to feature a very intriguing matchup between Daniel Cormier and Frank Mir, which would have marked, again, the first time a contracted UFC fighter had competed inside the hexagon. We were also supposed to see Luke Rockhold defend his middleweight belt against Lorenz Larkin. However, Mir got injured and had to pull out. According to Damon Martin, both Matt Mitrione and Chet Congo turned down the chance to replace Mir. Then Rockhold gets injured, and both bouts were dead in the water, forcing Strikeforce to cancel yet another Whoa, whoa, what, Phil. What happened there? Luke Rockhold got injured? I know. Come shocking. On. Shocking. Come on. I don't believe Shocking. You. Yeah. Okay, sorry. But, uh, but it, that, you know, that was, again, as we said, this was this was all, you know, seemed to be uh, just circling the drain. And uh, it's an understatement. Things were not looking good for Strike Force at all at this point. You're canceling events, uh, you know. So this leads us to what would end up being the final event once it became clear that this was going to be so. Scott Coker and Showtime decided to load up the card with up to four title fights rumored to be on, uh, on the event at, at various times. However, we'd only end up with the welterweight belt about, excuse me, originally the Luke Rockhold, Lorenz Larkin middleweight title fight was to be contested on this card, but Rockhold's wrist injury was apparently still bothering him. So that fight was scrapped, making the AKA product, the final strike force, 185 pound champ. 
Uh, we would also see Gilbert Melendez as the final lightweight champ because he would end up still injured and not able to compete. Ronda Rousey was rumored to defend her title with, despite now being with the UFC, but of course, neither fight fighter appeared on the card. Both would head over to the UFC with Melendez getting an immediate title shot against UFC lightweight champion Benson Henderson, which he lost in a highly, highly contested bout, which a lot of people still feel that he won. And Rousey faced off with Liz Carmouche uh, in the very first women's fight in, in UFC history uh, after she was awarded the newly minted UFC women's bantamweight title. Interestingly, Tim Kennedy gave an interview in ahead of this card in which he intimated that some of the fighters that dropped off the final strike strike force card did so to protect themselves, to protect their career, so that way they wouldn't be uh, dealing with a loss heading over to the UFC. Uh, here's a couple quotes from the former middleweight title challenger from this interview. I don't quote. I don't know why Strikeforce would go out and say, "Hey, all these guys are going to be on this card," and then a week later, all these guys aren't on the card. From Luke Rockhold to Gilbert Melendez to Masvidal, it's like all the marquee guys that you know are going that are that you know are going over the UFC are conveniently injured. Bottom line, it comes to it comes down to if you're a fighter, you should fight. You shouldn't be positioning yourself to leap to start the next segment of your career in a different promotion. Your loyalty has to lie with with who is taking care of you. Strike Force is taking care of me. I could have e easily been like, oh, my vagina hurts too. I'm not going to fight and then just get on a February card because I was miraculously healed. I'm not. I'm not going to go out. I'm going to go out and fight because that's what people think I should do. Or that's what people think that ah, and fight because that's what I think people should do. So, Josh, I don't know if you have any thoughts there, but you know, kind of yeah. com yeah, coming I in hot by uh, by coming in hot there for Tim Kennedy. Yeah, I wish he would have came in that hot against Luke Rockhold. He would have been the champion. Uh, no, I agree with him here because um, it, it is a little odd. It's a little conspicuous that all these people got injured. It may have just been the MMA gods, and it's just sort of the curse of Strike Force at the end, and it all happened that way. But I think that uh, with such a downer show, people knew, oh, my goodness, if I look bad on that card, I might not get yeah. picked up by the UFC. So yep. to me, that makes perfect sense. Uh, easy also for Kennedy to say because, I mean, he's going in there against a guy you knew he was going to be ahead of time. But, heck, yeah, do you want to go fight Daniel Cormier, who at this time is a rising star? You might be like, uh, I'll just wait. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, honestly, as much as I – would like to be able to say, oh yeah, I you know I totally, but I mean like, look, this you got to feed your family, take care of your family, and if you're risking your record, you're risking your standing with the UFC by taking a fight with a guy like Daniel Cormier, a two-time Olympian who is not as you know nowhere near the platform that we'd have in the UFC, not nearly as well known as some of the UFC. Why would you risk that? So my first of all, my hats off to Frank Mir. You know, former UFC heavyweight champion willing to go and take on the challenge of, you know, taking on Frank, uh, uh, Daniel Cormier, which, by the way, we would end up seeing that fight in the UFC. Daniel Cormier would win a unanimous decision over over Mir. But, uh, you know, I, you know, obviously I you can't speculate on who was still injured and who wasn't based on. I've talked with Gilbert Melendez a couple times. He's very cerebral. He's very strategic. He didn't want to do the third fight with Josh Thompson because he felt like it was a lose lose situation i could absolutely see him going you know what i'm coming off a knee injury why risk it against a very tough guy in pat healy when i'm going to be set up to do a you know a champion champ, champion versus champion match essentially with benson henderson why would i risk that huge money fight by you know defending a title that's going to be defunct you know i i i get it like i totally get it so uh, to your point it makes a lot of sense and and i you know it's hard to fault those guys for not wanting to risk their futures, you know, based on, a, a, you know, in a, in a promotion that is, 
that's going to that's going out of business. You know, so I, I get it. But but this brings us to the card itself. Again, Strikeforce Marquardt versus Safadine took place on January 13th, 2013 at the Chesapeake Energy Arena in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Broadcasted on Showtime, the event, the event featured commentary from Ron Kruk, Frank Shamrock, and Pat Militich. Kruk, who had done backstage interviews for Strikeforce previously, would take Morrow's place as Ronaldo was dealing with a private family matter at the time. And Josh, you and I have made no bones about uh, the fact that we're both huge fans of Mario and it was just not the same without him on the card. Yeah, but and it goes to your point too, like it was a fitting end because the card was so odd and weird that of course you wouldn't have Mario Anello's voice for this final card because it's almost like you wouldn't expect him. None of the other stars were there, or well, many of the other stars weren't there, so why well, have Mauro? So it was disappointing. Kruk is fine, it's just not a familiar voice. You know? Yeah. Uh, but this, and then despite the weekend being a free view one for Showtime, where basically anybody could watch the show, it only drew an average of three hundred ten thousand viewers. So it was not, you know, again another example of them going out with a whimper rather than a bang. Yeah, and I did a little research here on the final show, and according to Dave Meltzer and the Wrestling Observer, it was also going up against a. a uh, playoff game, an NFL playoff game, 49ers and the Green Bay Packers. So huh. that's that also a, an issue, that, you know, which was a sucky day, by the way, because I'm a Packers fan. And oh, I did. I did like you the remember Packers. that. Oh, so. very well. I wore my uh, I went to my buddy's house in Morgan Hill, California, in the South Bay. A bunch of Niners fans. I had my cheese head and we watched uh, what's his face? Um, Kaepernick run for 181 yards. Uh, as as a quarterback in a playoff game and set a playoff record. I think it was both a playoff and a regular season record for quarterback rushing yards at the time, if I remember correctly. But uh, okay. I remember that very well. It was uh, <laughs> not a good day for me. The end of strike force and the Niners just stomped all over the Packers. But, yeah, I interrupted you. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, I was just going to note that, you know, whenever there's those big games on TV that always competes with other sort of lower-level sports, and that may have been also a factor, according to Meltzer. Yeah, makes sense. All right, so we're going to get to the undercard here. I did want to note, normally we don't spend a lot of time on the undercard, but because of the fights that were on the undercard, I, I, Josh and I both watched these, uh, not all of them, but but some of them, some of the ones with the big names. So we're going to we're gonna buzz through a couple of these, and then, uh, and then we'll get to uh, – and also because it's the last card, we want to mention where the major strike force fighters went after this. So at 155 pounds, Estevan Payan defeated Mike Bravo via TKO, come away of punches. At 401 of the second round, at 155 pounds, Adriano Martins defeated Jorge, or I'm sorry, George Gurgel via unanimous, unanimous decision. At 185 pounds, Hodger Gracie defeated Anthony Lionheart Smith via submission, come by way of arm, arm triangle choke at 316 of the second round. This fight is not on UFC Fight Pass or YouTube. I could not find this fight, so I didn't get a chance. Uh, neither of us got a chance to watch it, but let's mention what happened after this. Both fighters would move over to the UFC. Gracie would only fight once inside the octagon, losing via unanimous decision to Tim Kennedy. He fought in 1FC twice after that, winning both to end his career in 2016 with an 8-2 and record, and from what I can see he's running very successful gyms over in London, England, actually. Uh, so he's doing quite well for himself. Smith, of course, has carved out a long run with the UFC with big wins over Sugar Rashad Evans, Hector Lombard, Shogun Hua, and Alexander Gustafson. He's currently on a three-fight win streak to bring his overall record to 36-16. and 16. All right, 155 pounds. 
man, man, how the mighty have fallen. I get, you got to feel bad for Pat Healy. Uh, he defeated the, the little known Kurt Holobaugh via unanimous decision. Again, this fight was not on UFC fight pass or YouTube. My only guess on this, these were shown on Showtime. I believe it was Showtime extreme. So perhaps they own the rights to these fights, but then it, that doesn't really make sense because some other fights that were supposedly were shown on extreme are on fight pass. So I really don't know. But anyways, Holobaugh was a virtual unknown coming into this fight, but there was a lot riding on it for Healy. Uh, despite winning five straight and earning a title shot against Melendez, the fight had fallen through twice due to injury, depriving Healy of ever getting a strike force title shot. And unlike others in the promotions, lightweight division Healy, as of a few days before the event had not been guaranteed entry into the UFC. And as he put it in that pre-fight interview quote, I think it's really a must win for me. I think my future kind of relies on it and quote, so fortunately for Bam Bam, he got the win here and went over the UFC, though he never got close to the top 10 again. Uh, he won a submission of the night and fight of the night over Jim Miller, which was a, a very big deal, but it was overturned due to Healy popping for marijuana after the bout. He then lost four straight inside the octagon, going down in defeat to Habib Nurmagomedov, uh, Bobby Green, Jorge Masvidal, and Gleason Tebow, which is a, it's a pretty tough run of fighters. Uh, he stopped fighting in 2018 with a 31 and 23 record. So, uh, you know, you got to say uh, Pat's got to be one of the most unlucky guys. You know that that you know that very much was hurt by the strike force closing. Uh, so it's unfortunate for him, but he did, you know, have a very long and respectable career. All right. 185 pounds. Tim Kennedy defeated Trevor Smith via submission come by way of guillotine choke at 136 of the third round. Trevor was known for his power, but was facing a tall task in a two-time former middleweight title challenger in Tim Kennedy. This ended up being a pretty classic Tim Kennedy bout. Lots of grit and grinding. I uh, landed some really nice shots throughout the bout while mixing in some takedowns and dirty boxing while Smith, he did have some good moments too. Uh, but in the end, a tiring Smith got caught in a guillotine while going for a takedown and was forced to tap out. A uh, pretty good fight, uh, but, you know, pretty much a standard Tim Kennedy fight. Yeah, it, it reminded me of how great Tim Kennedy is when he's going up against a guy who's not as good as him. <laughs> uh, I mean, he's, he's, my point is it's just sort of a commentary on his career is that he wasn't really good at fighting up. Like he was really masterful and guys at his level are obviously not as good. Um, and he was just like a, uh, you know, he stuck to his opponent. He was, he wrestled him, he took him down, he grinded and he just beat him into submission. And that's classic team Kennedy, classic Tim Kennedy he was not a great striker, and it's interesting to sort of look back at that and think about that in his career. I mean, he's got all these muscles. He looks like he hits hard, but really his best moments were fights like this when he just wore people down. I think like a Trevor Prangley or something where he just jumped on him and tapped him out, and that's what we saw here. But if I were Tim Kennedy, and I don't know if Tim Kennedy has any kids, but... I put this fight on first and say that was my that was me when I was in the hexagon <laughs> to show that was a good fight right there for him. Yeah, it was. I agree with everything you said there. You know, he was at a certain level in terms of his, uh, you know, his abilities and what what he was able to do. And he wasn't. He had complained before this fight that. Uh, you know, he's basically fighting one time a year. You know, he, he basically had retired from the military to, you know, really focus full time on fighting and couldn't get, you know, a lot of fights. And so it, it I, you know, that maybe that hurt him, that lack of experience, but whatever, you know, for whatever reason, it just, yeah, he just, I think he kind of had a, um, 
a ceiling, and he had trouble breaking through that. Just to answer your question, though, uh, he does have four kids. He has three daughters and a son. So just a just a quick note there. I quickly looked that up. Uh, but both fighters would head over head over to the UFC after this. Smith had a twelve fight run with the promotion. I do not remember Trevor Smith at all, uh, but apparently he was with the promotion for quite a while. Kennedy uh, he actually had five had five bouts inside the the octagon. He had a real big signature win against future middleweight champ Michael Bisping uh, during that stint, uh, but lost. His, he, so he won his first three bouts, lost his final two before retiring in 2016 with an 18-6 and six record. All right, this brings us to 155-pound bout between Ryan Couture and KJ Nunes, which Couture won via split decision. I spoke with Ryan about this bout recently. Uh, that episode is actually going to be our penultimate episode. It's going to be released next week. It's a cool interview talking with the son of an absolute MMA legend. Uh, in Of course, Randy the Natural Couture and Ryan talks about this fight. and We really went into detail, uh, talk about his mindset going in, kind of what he learned during the bout. It was very much a back-and-forth war. Uh, Ryan admitted in my interview that either one of them could have had their hand raised at the end. And uh, from what Ryan said, if you, you know, if you watched it, KJ was extremely angry. You could see how frustrated he was inside the cage. He really felt like he had won and he left the cage right away. And they showed him a couple times on camera and he was, he was really, really angry. And Ryan said that he could hear him yelling backstage about the refs. And, um, you know, it, it was, but and it was super close. I, I really don't know that I've, you could say, oh, there's, I mean, it just was very, very close. And regardless of who won, though, it was definitely a bloody, uh, entertaining bout. But, uh, but Josh, what did you think about it? Uh, just real quickly, I was frustrated with KJ Nunes. I thought that he underestimated Ryan Couture because he, quite honestly, should have been able to win this fight. Uh, ease, not easily, but more clearly. And Ryan Couture fought up. He did really well. He pressed the action. But what frustrated me with KJ was he was fighting very Nick Diaz-like in that he was in there boxing, and he had his hands low, and he was doing his Muhammad Ali thing. And it's like, dude, you're in the hexagon. You need to come and bring something more than just a great left jab and a right hand. And he really seemed one-dimensional to me in this fight. And the other thing was Couture hit him with some great shots. He bloodied him up. And in close fights, the guy who looks the worst usually loses. So it's a close fight. I think KJ was so mad because he probably realizes he didn't put on the best performance he could have. And it shouldn't have been that close, in my opinion. Uh, I mean, I so I, I agree and I disagree with you in that Nunes was definitely boxing, but he was throwing a lot of one-punch shots. Like, I, I think he, I mean, obviously, he knew he was a better striker than than Ryan Couture, but so I felt like he was kind of playing with him. He's like, obviously, I'm better than this guy and didn't really show it. And, and so he wasn't, you know, he wasn't throwing combinations. He wasn't setting up. He was trying to load up and throw power punches. And that's where he very much differs from Nick Diaz. Nick Diaz is a volume striker and he presses and he pushes. He's not a counter guy. And Nunes was kind of like, kind of weaving in and out, trying to throw one shot and trying to knock out Ryan in, in you know, in, in a highlight type moment. And it just, it just didn't work for him. And he, I think he dealt with a lot of that in MMA where he just was so much better as a striker than so many others. But he just he wouldn't press and he would kind of hang back. And 
it just didn't work out for him. So I don't think he was mad because he felt like he didn't perform his best. He clearly thought he had won based on his the change in his countenance from when he was, you know, showing respect to Ryan and then they announced that Ryan won and he was, you know, so angry and he stormed off. So I think he I think he thought he won and that's why he was so angry and he was screaming backstage about the judges and you know they judged it wrong and you know the the blood came from an from an accidental headbutt so it's not like you know but to your point if if this was judged today it might be you know might have gone the other way but i just don't think he did enough and i think he thought he did and that's why he was so angry so yeah yeah i agree with you and uh, he needed a haircut too his hair yeah which by the way is i just think it's a bad look and we saw i i don't have a note on it during the ed herman fight but when you have uh hair that uh you know moves with you and you get stung i think that's a bad look to the refs like when your hair moves because you've been hit like that look oh man he got stuck and, and i think with noons you know his hair wasn't as long as it it, it was in like the diaz fight but uh, you know when you're constantly having to push your hair out of the way and like and then when again when you do you get hit and your hair reacts to it i think it shows more to the judges that you just got stuck, even if it was just more of a glancing thing. So yeah, I, I agree with you. But anyways, let's get to next steps here. Couture would go on to the fight in the UFC twice. He lost both of those before heading over to Bellator and having an extended run there. He won two of his last three to close out his career at 12 and six. He's currently running uh, the extreme Couture gym and doing very, very well with that. And again, we go into detail on that. So make sure you look out for that interview. Uh, Nunes would also move over to the UFC after this. He went two, three and one and ended his career in 2016 with a 13 and nine record. All right, this brings us to the main card. So here we go. First fight, Jacare Souza versus Ed Herman at 194 pounds. This was a catchweight situation. Ed Herman uh, stepped in on short notice here. So this was uh, you know, a situation where they were happy to do the catchweight. Uh, Ed Short for you, Herman was 27 and 20 wins, seven losses, and one no contest coming into this one. And as mentioned, he was the only contracted UFC fighter in the history of Strikeforce to come over and compete inside the hexagon. Uh, in fact, multiple fighters had turned this fight down before Herman said yes. So again, hats off to, to Ed Herman for uh, you know being willing to step up. He was a tough, experienced Team Quest fighter. Uh, he was unbeaten in his last four fights, which included three finishes and then a no contest against Jake Shields. He'd lost a decision to Shields, but Shields had tested positive for a performance enhancer after the bout, so the result had been changed to a no contest. So technically, he was unbeaten in four bouts, although in interviews, he said that he didn't consider it, you know, he, he knew that he had lost and, and, and he knew that. So uh, Jacare, obviously known as one of the best ground practitioners in MMA, was 16 and 3. And of course, a former Strikeforce middleweight champion had been showing off his power in recent bouts, really been working on his hands uh, with the Noguera brothers and Anderson Silver and the others at, uh, at Black House, which uh, he had come off his first knockout win against Derek Brunson in a blistering 41-second win. Uh, he'd won two straight since losing the belt to Luke Rockhold. It was now primed for a big run in the UFC. Once the bell rang, the two clinched early on against the cage before separating. Jacare flashed some power strikes before grabbing a really aggressive double leg takedown, not known as a wrestler. Uh, this was a good look for him. Herman went for a heel hook, and while on the mat threw a couple of legal kicks since Jacare was also on a knee, the ref stood them up to warn Herman, then inexplicably kept them standing, which seemed to reward uh, the UFC fighter for his illegal actions. It's like, uh... 
no, dude, like you guys need to go back to the same position. But regardless, it did not matter as the big Brazilian backed up Herman with a solid straight right before landing more power shots punctuated by a sweeping double leg takedown uh, that landed in a slam. Jacare went to work on Herman's right arm, isolating it and getting the Kimura in deep uh, to elicit the tap and garner his 13th career submission win. But just pure dominance from Jacare here. Yeah, this felt like a mismatch. Jacare was the better fighter, and then he got mad after that whole mm. uh, upkick. Yeah, he did I, get I, mad. <laughs> he got really mad, which is like, dude, it happens. But um, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I don't like that rule, okay? So in a real fight, I know it's not a real fight. There's rules here. I mean, it is a real fight. I know it's not like a street fight. But you know, if the guy's on top of you, it kind of hits you, right? you obviously are going to try to kick your legs up to try yeah. to hit him. And technically he's a grounded opponent because his knees on the ground. I don't, I don't like that rule. I think if you, I don't, I don't know how you like be that nuanced about the rule, but I just think you're really limiting a guy because if you want to go to one knee, you basically are saying this guy can't up kick me. And I don't, I don't like it. It seems very natural to up kick when a guy's on top of you. So I don't, I didn't yep. really like that at all. I don't necessarily disagree with you. So I I, I, I could see I could definitely see that. Uh, today, short for you, still active in the UFC, holds a 24 and 15 record. Jacare recently retired after an extended run with the promotion where he achieved some really big wins, adding Yushin Okami, Gegard Musasi, Vitor Belfort, and Chris Weidman to his tally, and his final record ended up being 26 and 10. I don't think he ever got a UFC middleweight title shot which is kind of a shame having all those guys on your your record and you know not being able to get a title shot but uh still very very successful mma career i'm kind of surprised he got 10 losses because uh, he just was so dominant in you know in strike force and even the loss to rockhold it's not like he got dominated in that fight so uh it, you know big big ups to the alligator i think he was a really 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 good fighter a lot of power obviously great submission and, and you know pretty much always a fun guy to watch all right, that brings us to the next bout, 205 pounds, Mike Kyle versus Gegard Mousasi, undefeated at 205 pounds. Mike Kyle was a big, light heavyweight with strong power capable of knocking out big heavyweight, heavyweights such as Bigfoot Silva. 19-8-1-2 and two. overall, Mac had been working on his overall game at AKA as well as his temperament. He had been working on rehabilita- rehabilitating his image as a dirty fighter. Uh, he'd knocked out a former champ in Mousasi, uh, I'm sorry, knocking out a former champ in Mousasi would swing the door wide open for Kyle to return to the UFC where again he had had a controversial run uh, if you don't believe me just check out his fight with Wes Sims uh, he had choked out Sims but there was a big old bite mark on uh, on, on Sims Peck from Mike Kyle and then uh, check out what he did in the WEC I forget the guys I want to say Brian Olson but he I mean he didn't just punch him after the bell he beat him up and, and it was just a horrible scene and he should have gotten time in jail honestly for that Anyways, Musassi, 33-3-2 at only 27 years old, was on a five-fight unbeaten streak. He had won 19 of his last 21 bouts. Already slated to head over to the UFC, Musassi wanted to make one last statement before heading into the octagon. In pre-fight interviews, he talked about getting really serious and, quote, professional about trading for the first time, and he was looking to show that off. Uh, again, you know, this fight had been mentioned, had, sorry, had been scheduled three times before without happening. So it's pretty amazing to see these two actually face off in the cage. Or it reminds, I think it was, I think it was Habib and Tony Ferguson that were supposed to fight like four times and it never happened. But anyways, uh, massive leg kick early on from Musassi got, uh, got Kyle's attention. Kyle was pressing with the strikes, but Musassi was doing a great job evading. 
Uh, later in the round, Musasi secured a takedown, started working inside Kyle's guard. Mac was able to gain half guard, looking to get up, uh, but the former champ was controlling him effectively, eventually opening a cut on Kyle's forehead. Musasi then went to full mount and started dropping down some very, very heavy ground and pound, and Kyle was eating hard strikes, gave up his back, which allowed uh, Musasi to cinch in the rear naked choke. And Kyle had kind of a weird moment. Kyle appeared to tap, but the ref wasn't sure, kind of let it go for a few more seconds before Mac officially tapped out. But really great win, very dominant for Gegard Musasi in the official result. Gegard Musasi defeated Mike Kyle via submission, come by way of rear naked choke at 409 of the first round. And by the way, before you say something, Josh, I got to mention, I forgot to read the result. Of the previous fight, Bajakare Souza defeated Ed Herman via submission, come by way of Kimura at 310 of the first round. But yeah, Josh, what were your thoughts on this uh, this bout and specifically Musasi's uh, performance here? Well, you know, I joke a lot uh, to anybody who's listened to these podcasts, the whole series, um, about Luke Rockhold, right? And it's kind of a running joke just because, you know, he thinks he's some celebrity model. And, you know, I that think you love could, that you love. He could. Right? Well, I think as you know, if I were a promoter, I would have done a lot more things with Luke Rockhold than either Strikeforce or the UFC did. But that aside, when I see Gegard Musasi, when I see him fight, and I see him in this fight, like to me, this guy is like the greatest fighter who ever fought in Strikeforce. This guy is so good, and and just so incredible when he is on. He's like Khabib. I mean, he, he's like nobody can beat him. And he just, I know he's facing Mike Kyle, but he demolished him. Like, he could have beat anybody on this night. And I think Musasi is one of the greatest MMA fighters of all time. Uh, he was a strike force champion. He was never a UFC champion, but he should have been. And he's just incredible. He's so skilled. You know, we talk about Tim Kennedy being a great wrestler, not having the hands. Musasi has great hands. He's got great submission. He's got so many different skills, and he's gotten better over his career. And I just think he's one of the most overlooked MMA fighters of all time. And, you know, I, I, he's just really good. And he this is a great performance by him. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think he is one of the greatest middleweights of all time, a guy that could go back and forth between middleweight and light heavyweight. I'm looking at his you know, his record here, and we're going to talk about his UFC run in just a second, but his amateur boxing career, 12-1, and one, you know, nine wins by knockout, so incredible striker, undefeated as a kickboxer at 8-0. He's a black belt in judo, I, you know, and, and again, has won just so many titles. He's the uh, former Dream Light heavyweight champion, former Dream middleweight champion, former Cage Warriors middleweight champion, former Strike Strikeforce light heavyweight champion. So he's an overall six-time MMA world champion. When he left the UFC back in 2017, he was number four in the official UFC middleweight rankings. I mean, the guy, you know, he's – it's not like he left because he was getting run out of there. You know, it, it was obviously not that – uh, that type of, of, of situation for him. And he just, he's been extremely, extremely successful as a fighter. And I just, I think he's, yeah, I think he's one of the best. He's the current Bellator middleweight champion. He's a two-time uh, Bellator middleweight champion. And, you know, the list of, of victims on his record is long and, and pretty impressive. I mean, he Hector Lombard, uh, Cyborg Santos, Dennis Kang, Melvin Manhove, Jacare, Mark Hunt. I mean, he submitted Mark Hunt, uh, you know, Babalu, uh, uh, Gary Goodridge, uh, OSP, Mike Kyle, Mark Munoz. I mean, 
Dan Henderson, uh, uh, Talis Lytus, former Strike Force, uh, I'm sorry, former UFC title challenger, Vitor Belfort, Uriah Hall, uh, Alexander Schlemenko, Chris Weidman, Rafael Carvalho, Rory McDonald, Leota Machida, Douglas Lima. I mean, the guy is, you know, he just demolished Austin Vanderford to defend his Bellator middleweight title. I mean, he's just, and he's, by the way, he's only 36 years old, (laughs) by the way. I mean, yeah, he's still only 36. So, God, I mean, I don't even know how many fights he had. I mean, a ton of fights, right? Yeah, yeah. He's uh, (laughs) 47-9. Where was the rest of it? Uh, I'm sorry, 49-7-2. So, I, I mean, he is one of the greats one of the best of all time in the definitely as far as middleweight he just i think his personality kind of keeps him from being you know seen it like like really uh, a bigger star i think but you know next year we'll mark his 20th year you know and and or we'll mark his 20 year anniversary and you know hats off to a guy that that was one of that is one of the greats and and definitely a guy that walks his own path and you know, has fought all over the world and, and yeah, one of the most talented God given, you know, ability guys in MMA history that turned it into a, you know, a long career. So a lot, a lot of, so, and somewhere King Mo is listening to us talk saying, Hey, I beat that I guy. I beat that you know? guy, dominated that guy. <laughs> and I probably taught him he needs to take his wrestling and training more seriously. But so yeah, Musasi very, very successful in both the UFC and now Bellator has all these, you know, big wins on his record. Uh Kyle, you know, not not quite the same path. He did not end up returning to the UFC. Uh, he has fought in a wide variety of promotions since Strike Force closed up. He's now active in bare knuckle fighting, but he has not won uh, either of his bouts there. In fact, he has not won a fight in any combat sports since 2017 uh his mma record stands at 23 19 1 and 2 all right this brings us to two middleweight bouts in a row uh nandor guelmino versus josh barnett and i'm sure you're asking who that is i had no idea so we'll we'll jump into that but barnett was 31 and 6 at this point he had broken his hand in the cormier fight cormier ironically had broken his hand in in that fight as well Uh, however the war master was back. There were a lot of questions about his, uh, his future. I mean, the former middleweight, I'm sorry, former middleweight <laughs> guys haven't probably hadn't been a middleweight since junior high, but, uh, he was the former UFC heavyweight champ. Uh, he had had a strained relationship with Dana white and Zufa. Uh, he had had a real bad con really, really highly like controversial, uh, run with the promotion. You remember he'd been stripped of the heavyweight title and then he had a big contract dispute. Uh, his contract with Zufa with strike force would be up after this bout. Uh, and of course it was a foregone conclusion to most people, most people's minds that Barnett was going to win this bout. So the focus, the questions were more on the future. Would he go back to Japan? Would he retire from MMA? Would he just focus on pro wrestling full-time? Lots of questions surrounding Barnett, uh, Barnett going into this. And then for his part, Nandor Guelmino, a native of Vienna, Austria, he was almost a 10 to one underdog. He had never faced a caliber, uh, a fighter, the caliber of Josh Barnett, except maybe semi Schilt. He was 11, three and one coming in. He had fought exclusively in Europe. So this was a big step up for him in every way. I'm they did the, the commentators didn't mention, you know, other like UFC fighters or, you know, heavyweights turning this bout down. So I don't know that that's what happened, but I would assume so because you know, again, Nandar Guelmino, not known in the in the states at all, never fought uh, in North America. So, why would you bring a guy like that in? So, I'm guessing that they were, 
you know, the, the well had run dry and they had to go with a guy that was willing to do it. But I, I did, I do want to mention Nandor looked like a lot like Matt Sarah as he headed to the cage. Uh, and then I lo- noticed the referee looked like a white version of Nick Diaz. I don't, I don't know what was going on in my head at that point, but that for whatever re- reason stuck out in my mind. Uh, but this was, well, well I, I'm going to go back and look at that referee. <laughs> I've never heard anyone described as the white version of Nick Diaz. Dude, look I got to see this guy. Yeah, look him up. It, it stuck out for whatever reason. I was just like, dude, that guy looks like Nick Diaz. So yeah, definitely check that out. But uh, anyways, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is, you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. But uh, this would be a quick one. Barnett was just not messing around. Uh, he issued any sort of striking, just grabbed a body lock that led to a takedown. And after avoiding a Nandor uh, uh, guillotine attempt, Barnett began to employ his catch wrestling, grinding his forearms into his opponent's face. And after Bernard dro- Barnett dropped back for a leg lock, Nandor was able to stand. However, Barnett was able to get the Vienna native back down to the mat right away, landing right in mouth this time. Nandor inexplicably pretty much gave Barnett the arm triangle, allowing himself to be choked and tapped almost immediately. If it didn't know any better, I would think that this was a, uh, you know, the fight had been thrown, but there was no reason for that. Barnett was going to demolish this guy and just a really bad mismatch mismatch and the former champ capitalized and, uh, the result officially Josh Barnett defeated Nandor Guelmino via submission come by way of arm triangle choke at 211 of the first round. You're going to hate me for asking you this, Phil, but did you ever see the Ken Shamrock Kimbo slice fight? Yeah, yeah. I w- when Shamrock had, Shamrock had him like choked out and then inexplicably just G- forgot gave it. it up. Yeah, yeah. I, I vaguely remember that, but I do remember there were a ton of rumors that it, the fight had been thrown. I do remember that. Yeah, I mean, it's like can't this is what you do and you can't like submit this guy but anyway um i i just thought he gave up easy he just gave up quick he's like you know i'm not gonna stay in this thing i'm done i'm over forget it that's what i thought with his his tap out uh this was a, a strange fight it was a mismatch i don't know who this person was i have to feel they could have fed somebody else against him but we know heavyweight division is always lean in mma uh but this was a strange fight and good good one to end on for josh barnett yeah it's it it was a good way for him to to walk away and he had said or not walk away but to you know to like you said to go out on his uh, on a big win barnett said that and the commentator stated that he'd been really really sick in fact barnett said he'd only had two good days of training during training camp and just was not in good shape he dealt with a lot of sickness but you know so it seemed to make sense that he was going to you know, go in and just get this done. But great pro wrestling style post fight interview from Barnett afterwards. Militich asked him about what's next. And suffice to say, Barnett said a lot of colorful colorful things, but he was non committal and and you know wasn't gonna tip his hand as far as where he was going to be going. Yeah, it was hilarious. Josh Barnett called Pat Militech a jabroni reporter. Yeah, and yeah. Pat Militech's like, I'm not a reporter. Like, that was more offensive than being called a jabroni to him. Well, he probably you know? doesn't like, know what a jabroni is. <laughs> he's not a wrestling fan. He's not. He's like a real serious dude. So, yeah. Um, but anyway, that was a very good promo. Vince McMahon, WWE, whomever, could have made a ton of money with Josh Barnett on the microphone. He's like Pat McAfee, but like way better and like real and like a big fighter. He's just so charismatic. Um, I did want to note, according to the Wrestling Observer, because they did a whole thing on sort of the final show, but that Barnett was earning $250,000 per fight with Strikeforce. 
And that was a lot of money. And honestly, UFC, according to Meltzer, was never going to pay that to Barnett. And that the UFC went into real, I'm sorry, Strikeforce went into real debt with the heavyweight tournament because they had to pay Fedor, uh, Fedor a big base. They played Josh Barnett. Who else, you know, in that on that? So they went into debt and they were never able to get that money back. So Barnett's options were limited because... He might have been able to go back to the UFC, but it would not have been for this kind of money. And, of course, they had their their history. So I don't think he knew what he wanted to do. But I believe MMA fighters are underpaid. UFC fighters are underpaid. It's sad that $250,000 you know, per fight, the guy fights twice a year, is bankrupting a company. But which, that's sort of Which, by the way, 250k even today in the UFC is that would be far more than most of them make, which is, yeah. which is crazy. We're talking about 10 years, you know, almost, almost 10 years ago. And, and it still has not shifted enough to, to, for that to not be considered a, a large amount of money for a fighter purse. So, yeah, but you know, he's done very well for himself. We'll talk about him in just a second. Nandor actually did end up getting a fight in the UFC. He lost to someone whose name I just simply cannot pronounce, and I'm not going to try. Uh, he fought one more time after that, losing to former UFC heavyweight champion Rico Rodriguez in 2018 to close out his career with an 11-6-1 record. Bar- Barnett, despite everything, would actually end up in the UFC. He kicked off his return with a TKO finish of Frank Mir. Uh, the Warmaster would go on to get wins over Roy Nelson and Andre Olofsky while also losing to Travis Brown and Ben Rothwell. He's technically signed by Bellator he actually signed with them uh, in 2019 but he has yet to, yet to compete for the promotion he seems more focused on pro wrestling these days uh, both performing in the ring and as a commentator he recently started uh, competing or I'm saying competing but performing in the new in New Japan pro wrestling's US shows uh, he's you know I, I wouldn't be shocked to see him show up in AEW at some point because he is such a fantastic uh, you know, guy on the mic, if he was training with top American top team, I'm sure he'd show up in AEW, but he's got his own promotion. It's a GCW game changer wrestling, which is probably the hottest independent out there. He does a, a kind of an affiliated promotion with them called blood sport. And it's a, I don't know if jo- Josh, have you ever watched a, a blood sport uh, match or anything like that? You know, I only watch what Vince McMahon tells me to watch. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I've never seen that. Yeah. It's uh, no. it, it's interesting. <laughs> like, it's kind of like a kind of like Bloodsport, the movie. Like, it, it it's you know they fight in a like a mat or a fight fight on a mat. Um, if you ever want to check it out, there's a, a matchup between Minoru Suzuki and Josh Barnett from a couple years ago on there, and it's you know it's pro wrestling. It's a worked shoot essentially, but. These guys hit each other really, really hard, and it's 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 worth checking out. Uh, Josh Barnett and John Moxley had a had a blood sport mm. match, and it's 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 very interesting. I think it's worth checking out. So I think you should. But but are there characters, and do they make movies? That's what I want to know. No, I can't watch it. No, but I mean, <laughs> no, dude, the Barnett the Barnett Moxley fight is is it's man, it's pretty brutal. So I where is that? It, where can I find that? It's all on YouTube. I'm actually scrolling through YouTube oh, right now. So, yeah, okay. just look up GCW Bloodsport, and it's one of the first ones that comes up. But, yeah, really, really interesting cool. stuff. It's it's worth checking out. So, all right, let's uh, let's move on. Oh, I should mention Barnett's MMA record stands at 35 and 8. He's definitely a heavyweight great, not one of the greatest. You know, a lot of asterisks on his record because of uh, drug stuff, but, you know, very, very talented. I love his character, his persona, his catch wrestling was always entertaining. So 
uh, he's worth checking out. All right, and I, apparently earlier I said two middleweight fights coming up. I meant two heavyweight fights coming up. This is the second of those two heavyweight fights. Daniel Cormier would take on Dion Starring. Once again, who is this guy? And again, this was a situation uh, where we they couldn't get somebody to fight Daniel Cormier. So we'll get there in just a second. Uh, I feel like Dion Starring had a hit song. In the yeah, it's, or, I'm not, yeah. I'm not joking. Or the, or the like, 70s, one of the two. Well, Dion in the 70s, but then there's also, anyway, I just... That's not an MMA fight. No, it's not. And he doesn't look <laughs> and he was they called him the soldier. He came out like looking like uh you know, like a video game character from the nineties. Like he, he came out in his fatigues and the the beret hat and apparently he was a legitimate soldier uh in overseas and uh he trained with uh, Alistair former US Strike Force heavyweight champion Alistair Overeem. They said that he was twenty eight and seven with twenty two finishes, so a thirty five fight vet. Uh, how I mean, you look him up on tapology, he had fewer fights than that. But regardless, uh, he had served in both Afghanistan and Iraq in the Dutch military. He was a 20 to one underdog kind of, which I got to say, okay. I don't understand how Nandor is a 10 to one underdog against a former UFC heavyweight champion. And while DC, obviously two-time Olympian undefeated, much less experienced. I mean, maybe because he beat up Josh Barnett so badly, they doubled the the, the odds here. But Starring had a lot more experience than than Guelmino, so I, I kind of weird. But anyways, uh, Starring had already proved his toughness by willing to take being willing to take a fight against a rising star and Daniel Cormier. Although he again not really being known in the states, he didn't really have much to lose either. Uh, this is a bit of a homecoming for the two-time Olympic wrestler in DC, as he had competed in wrestling at Oklahoma state university earning all american honors there he was undefeated at 10 and 0 and again was coming off a very dominant win over josh barnett to win the strike force heavyweight grand prix and with the ufc on the horizon dc had a lot riding on this bout a loss here would hurt his image and prestige just as he entered into the world's biggest mma promotion big crowd reaction as you might expect for dc as he headed to the cage starring with crest questionable strategy early on clinching with daniel cormier i don't know why you would want to when your best shot is is puncher's chance your d- decision your approach is to clinch with a two-time olympic wrestler not real smart uh dc was able to turn it into a really smooth twisting takedown and kind of almost like a overhead belly to belly suplex i uh, went to work from half guard he was able to get the crucifix but starring was able to scramble get back to his feet from there cormier hurt the dutchman with strikes before taking things back to the mat once inside mount uh, dc landed short elbows but once again starring was able to scramble get back to his feet and then starring went back to DC's world again by clinching again. Not sure why he did that. Not sure why he kept doing that. And once again, Cormier capitalized and took starring down landing in full mouth this time. Starring survived more brutal short elbows, but definitely lost around 10, nine and maybe even 10, eight starring through a couple more strikes before clinching again to kick off the middle frame and DC disengaged a short time later. Things got back to standing once again, inexplicably starring clinched. And I think that's the third time I've said the word in, inexplicably on this podcast. Not sure I've ever said it on this show before, but uh, once again, DC got another takedown that evolved into side mount starring gave up his back. DC got in some riding time and the Dutchman ate some heavy leather from DC who was all over his opponent. Submission opportunities were opened up, but Cormier seemed content to just blast away with big bombs and really beat starring up in the process. Got again, got to tip your hat to starring. He was tough, but he was doing very, very little in defending himself. I've seen fights stopped for less than what was what was going on here. And with just under a minute left, referee Big John McCarthy had seen enough. Stopped the fight. Just pure dominance from DC in another heavyweight mismatch. Yeah, it was kind of a lame fight. Again, it's like we, we're seeing stars, but 
the jobber their job their jobber you know they're they're basically jobber matches like yeah, like what you would watch like saturday morning. yeah saturday exactly it's like <laughs> watching saturday morning superstars and seeing tito ortiz you know hit barry horowitz with the you know the flying <laughs> forearm and you know the the in a three-minute match like that's essentially what we were getting here yeah and i i mean i don't know any other way Dion staring starring staring uh could have fought daniel cormier i mean we knew he could hit he just did the best he could. So trying to grapple with him, he just maybe figured maybe I'll get lucky or catch Daniel. But Which I don't know yeah, how you're going to well, do when you're you're clinching with him and not, like, you know, standing back and trying to punch. So I don't yeah. really get that. But the official result. Well, yeah, sorry. Phil, it was, yeah, go ahead. It was inexplicable. It, it was, was inexplicable. inexplicable. <laughs> um, the official result, Daniel Cormier defeated Dion Starring via TKO come by way of punches at 402 of the second round. In his post-fight interview, DC was asked about his next bout. He announced that he had signed with the UFC officially, would be facing Frank Mir next before dropping to light heavyweight to go after John Jones' title. Uh, more on that in a second, which I you know, I was kind of like, why, why does he want to cut down? I mean, he's a short guy. He's only 5'10", maybe 5'11". Excuse me, maybe 5'11". So, you know, in that sense, it would make, make you know, it makes sense. Uh, but and then I... I realized that Kane Velasquez was still competing in the heavyweight division. That's one of his boys. So he's not going to go after an AKA teammate. Uh, so he was going to drop to a different division and go after a guy that he probably already didn't like. Uh, but coming out of this fight, starring has continued to compete mostly overseas. He last fought in 2019. Uh, the 43 year old currently holds a 37 and 17 record. DC of course has gone on to have one of the greatest careers in MMA history. We don't really mention DC often as far as, you know, being on the, the Mount Rushmore, but Dude, I mean, before he hung up his gloves in 2020, he he, he was 22 and three. Uh, he had beaten the likes of Frank Mir, Roy Nelson, Dan Henderson, Anthony Johnson twice, Anderson Silva, Derek Lewis, uh, Alex Alexander Gustafson to win the vacant UFC light heavyweight title after John Jones was stripped of the belt, and then Stipe Miocic to win the UFC heavyweight title. I mean, you know, he's obviously forever going to be linked to both John Jones and Stipe. Uh, he will be forever remembered as one of the true greats of the sport of MMA, regardless of weight class. And for a guy that got started, you know, obviously amateur wrestling, but a guy that became such a great striker and just one of the best all around. Uh, you know, light heavy slash heavyweights that there that's ever competed, and and you know he's got to got to think that he's one of the got to be on the 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 Mount Rushmore for the you know the upper the heavier weight divisions. I mean, just definitely an amazing amazing fighter. Uh, he he was very good. Um, the fact that he could not be John Jones twice that's, that's always going to live with him. Yeah, that's got it. That's got to kill nope. him. Yeah, but nobody could be John Jones. But then John Jones, who knows what he was on <laughs> you know, was he yeah. was he fighting fair kind of thing but yeah the, you know daniel cormier he doesn't look like the best fighter all. on the planet dad, dad bod to the extreme right so that, that that's always always hurt him like you never look at him and be like holy crap but that missing yeah, tooth, the missing tooth also like he's got that missing i don't know if he still does but he had that missing tooth and his you know i just kind of yeah not not really like a he didn't look like an athlete at all at all so and honestly when stipe beat him i was floored like i was like i cannot believe stipe miocic is beating this guy like it was crazy you've been knocked out twice that's that's hard to say you're the greatest of all time yeah i don't i mean i don't think he's the goat i mean obviously i john jones was a better fighter you know stipe beat him twice but to have three losses although again you know the couple of those fights. It's it's hard to even keep track of all the John Jones fights. Like all the times they were scheduled to fight. You know the fights that were overturned. It's hard to keep track of that. But when you're three official losses 
are to Stipe Miocic, one of the greatest heavyweights of all time, and John Jones, the greatest light heavyweight of all time and probably the greatest fighter of all time, period. At least the most talented fighter of all time. I mean, that's, you know, but yeah, he's a step below them in the end. But, but you know, still one of the greatest, in, in my opinion. So, all right, well, this brings us to the uh, the main event at 170 pounds. Nate Marquardt versus Tarek Safadine for the Strikeforce Welterweight Championship. Marquardt was 32-10-2 with 24 finishes. Uh, he was coming off one of the most brutal knockouts in Strikeforce history when he finished Tyron Woodley with an uppercut to win the 170-pound title. Having been cut from the UFC due to issues with TRT, testosterone replacement therapy, Marquardt was now win or lose headed back to the promotion, and a win here would ensure the champ would come in on a high note. Uh, Team Quest fighter Safadine was 13-3 and with six finishes. He was hoping to become the first Belgian to win a major MMA title. A nearly 3-1 to underdog, Safadine had everything to gain in this bout, and here we go. The final fight in Strike Force history. Uh, Marquardt got hurt early in the first with a straight shot that wobbled him, letting the champ know he was in for a fight. What ensued was a mix of striking and clinching, a very technical affair that was tough to score. I'd probably give it to Safadine 10 9. Not a whole lot to speak to in the second round. Again, very technical. Neither fighter really stood out. I, I gave it to Marquardt 10 9 due to his control in the round, but. Pretty boring fight early on, but things began to pick up in the third round. Marquardt threw some really solid strikes early on. Uh, however, the two compa- uh, combatants tied up against the cage, once again drawing some boos from the crowd. Uh, but Safadine really st- – I, I feel like the first couple of rounds, Safadine was kind of trying to figure out if he belonged in there with a guy like Nate Marquardt. Uh, by the third round, he started walking him down. He was uh, – you know, Marquardt was still scoring with some strikes, but the great was looking kind of fatigued to me, and the challenger was just coming on strong as the round wore on. And Marquardt's lead leg was red and welted up as Safadine's right leg kick found at home time after time. And, again, this was kind of a closer round, but I, I probably gave it to Safadine 10-9. But by the fourth round, this was definitely the challenger's fight. That leg was clearly hurting Marquardt, and as they would, the, the camera would catch that left lead leg from different angles, you could see like it was swollen, it was welted up, it was turning different colors. Uh, you know, he's backing up his foot, footwork wasn't very good. I mean, he was clearly in pain and sensing it. You know, maybe the champ started throwing some some big punches with hopes of replicating his finish of Woodley, knowing that that might be his only shot at winning this fight. Probably questioning whether or not his leg was going to give out or not, and. Savadine was able to avoid, kept killing Marquardt's leg with kicks, and I'm not sure why Marquardt hadn't been checking those throughout the fight, but he was paying the price for it. Also not sure why he wasn't going for takedowns. He's a bigger fighter, a guy cutting down from 185. Uh, you know, It just didn't make sense why he didn't try to do that. And Safadine landed a punch that cut Marquardt above his right eye, and there wasn't a ton of blood, but this is a very, very clear-cut 10-9 round for Safadine, who was winning. And by the final round, uh, Marquardt's leg was just a mess. I mean, it legitimately looked gross. And, uh, you know, just Safadine, for his part, he was fired up. He let out a big roar before the final, you know, for the, the bell for the final round and clearly went in the fight. Things slowed down. The challenger looked like he was trying to avoid, make sure that Marquardt didn't land a home run shot in the bottom of the ninth to come from behind and win it. And Safadine was able to land a very good takedown with under a minute left, which secured himself the final round and probably the win in the process. And, you know, in the end, while it took a couple rounds to get there, it ended up being a strategic, you know, pretty entertaining fight uh, where the Belgian came in with a really strong game plan and executed it beautifully to take the welterweight belt in the very final, very last strike force fight. The official result, Tarek Safadine defeated Nate, Mar- Nate Marquardt, the unanimous decision to win the strike force welterweight champion and close out 
the promotion. And uh, just as far as next steps, Savadine, despite heading over to the UFC, would never come close to the success he had in Strikeforce. He went two and four inside the octagon, wrapped up his career in 2017 with a 16 and seven record at the very young age of 30. Uh, Marquardt second run with the UFC did not go very well compiled a three and nine record and after retiring on a three fight losing streak the great uh, came returned in to MMA in 2021 he split a couple bouts since then his record currently stands at 36 20 and two I talked to him uh, recently uh, so if you haven't already make sure you check out that interview and I know I kind of skipped over you a little bit there Josh but Josh what did you uh, what was your takeaway from this fight anything that, that jumps out in your mind well I remember this fight watching it live or you know, on TV, live in the moment. And it was, for me, it was like, wow, this Tarek Safadine, a star is born here. I remember being really excited at his performance and thinking, this is a guy who's going to do great things in the UFC because he was so masterful with his kicks and, and Mark Hart was just unable to defend. And I think that was the takeaway. I was disappointed that that was the, the, the main event, but... Safadi to me looked really good. He looked like he was going to go to the UFC and be a contender, and it never quite happened. But uh, I thought this was a great moment for Tarek Safadine to win the title, to go out and beat somebody who was, you know, had a name in the UFC, and of course beat Tyron Woodley. And Safadine, he looked good. He looked great. And, you know, Markor. He was past his prime anyway, quite frankly. He never should have beat Tyron Woodley. So He's kind um, of a journey. I yeah. mean, no disrespect yeah. to Nate. I, I have I spoke with him actually earlier today on a separate subject and I have a ton of respect for Nate Marquardt and I think he was you know, I mean the guy that, that got to challenge Anderson Silva for the the middleweight belt in the UFC, you know, uh, you, you don't get middleweight, you don't get title shots for for nothing, you know, and then to get a welterweight title shot and make good on it. I mean, tons of respect and and he's obviously a very talented, you know, very intelligent fighter and he had some big moments and some really big wins. Uh but yeah, you know, he was kind of past it at this point and uh, not to say he got lucky against Tyron, but he was just way more experienced and knew what he was doing and way more well-rounded than Tyron. I was never impressed with Trek Safadine. I I just you know, he beat a guy that, that was definitely beatable. I mean, he, you know, Nate had a bunch of losses on his record already going into this bout. So, I mean, he had 10, 10 losses. So, uh, you know, I'm not surprised at all that, that, that Safadine won the fight. This is a team quest guy that's going to come in with a good strategy and he executed it very well, but he just, you know, even in his wins and strike force, he was not a killer. He was not a guy that was going to come in and overwhelm you. He was kind of a grinder and, yeah, I just I was never really that impressed with him and I wasn't super impressed with this fight. Like this would be like a lower level. This would be probably a main card fight in the UFC at the time, but it, it, this wouldn't be main eventing anything more than like a UFC fight night. So it, it just showed you how far the promotion had fallen. You know, after Nick Diaz left, the welterweight division was was never the same. And and this kind of proved that. You know, it's just it's kind of a microcosm of where the promotion was at at this point. So, all right, well, let's, let's wrap this up. No fighters tested positive for performance enhancers or recreational drugs after the event. So they went out on a clean note there. I uh, did want to mention that both Josh Barnett and Nate Marquardt were tested and came back clean. So that's good. Total fighter, uh, total disclosed fighter payroll of $1,153,500, which is a massive jump up from what the promotion had been paying out previously. Now, obviously having a bunch of their big names at that at least were willing to fight on this, you know, that's going to bump things up. Safety, 
Dean got 39K. Mark Cord got 40. Cormier got 120,000. Starring got eight. Barnett, as you mentioned, got 250,000. Nandor got 12. Gegard Musassi, 175,000. Mike Kyle, 25. Hinaldo Souza. Uh, not a shocker. He's a hundred thousand five hundred dollars. Ed Herman thirty four. Ryan Couture got twenty two. KJ Nunes got forty one. Tim Kennedy got eighty eighty thousand. Trevor Smith got eight. Pat Healy forty two. Court Holobo or Holobo, excuse me, nine. Uh, Hodger Gracie ninety four thousand. And Anthony Smith ten thousand. So overall, you know, a pretty entertaining event to close out Strike Force, but just a far cry from. You know, Frank Shamrock versus Kung Lee, Frank Shamrock versus Nick Diaz, Josh Thompson versus uh, pretty much anybody. But, you know, Gilbert Melendez, it just, you know, the the Fedor fights were always going to be they were always a big deal, always entertaining. Uh, it, you know, would have been nice to have a decisive finish in the main event. But, you know, when you've got D.C. taking on a guy that no one's ever heard of before, you've got Barnett taking on a guy that no one's ever heard of before. It's just, you know, the promotion went out with a winner. Uh, I'm sorry, a whimper. And while we don't, you know, we don't have attendance numbers for the event, it was clearly a smaller crowd than we'd seen during Strike Force's heyday. It was was sad to see the promotion where it was at on that day. And, you know, again, went out with on a probably a low note in a lot of ways. But Josh, uh, what, what did you think? Anything to share here? It was a weird event. It sort of almost felt like a dream. Like it just these images of greatness mixed with these images of who the heck are these people like Barnett, Daniel Cormier, Kennedy, and then you've got these other people whose names I'm not even going to remember now on the card. It just didn't match up very well. And it was a sad ending that there's no Mauro Ranallo. I know that he had family issues, but it was just over. It was done and it was time to pull the plug. Of course, I contend that UFC forced it um ufc did everything it could to not allow strike force to succeed dave Meltzer from the wrestling observer he uh, wrote uh after the show quote the promotion's heart and soul died when it was sold to zufa in march 2011 with its top stars stripped and its inability to foster a positive relationship with broadcast partner showtime the question was really when not if the plug would be pulled. Virtually every Strike Force employee was let go after the first Zufa show. So uh, we got it almost a couple years. We did a couple years after after this, but it was pretty much a depressing show and the end of an era. I really enjoyed Strike Force, and I thought that they could have been a contender, and they did for a little while there. They had a good shot, but it didn't happen. And there's no doubt in my mind that Ronda Rousey was not on this card because had she lost, it would have been a huge payday loss to the UFC. And UFC thought, well, at least we can pop one big payday with her. She doesn't turn out to be everything that she is. Yeah, I agree. It's a good synopsis. Uh, So we're we're kind of running over here, so I want to quickly close this out. But we've got two more episodes to go on Inside the Hexagon. Uh, Next week, again, you'll hear my interview with Ryan Couture, who fought on the final Strike Force card. He'll discuss what it was like going into the event, knowing it would be the last one, as well as his controversial win over KJ Nunes. And after that, we'll be wrapping up the show with a look back at the highlights of Strike Force. We have clips uh, from several fighters, execs, and a top MMA journalist to share with you in that episode. And I can't wait uh, to get that 
done. Hopefully it'll be a fitting way to close out the show. But yeah, we've got some really cool uh, clips to, to share with you. Ariel Helwani, Boss Rutan, Scott Smith, Nate Marcourt, uh, Rich Chow. They have all shared clips so far. And I won't mention the other names, but we've got uh, three others that have, have promised to get me quotes. And so we've got uh, so, some audio clips that we're going to share that we're going to pepper in throughout the show. And then uh, Josh and I are going to walk through just the basically the top strike force moments and kind of make it a celebration of all three all things strike force before we ride off into the sunset so i'm looking forward to that but with that we are going to ride off in the sunset for this episode hope we hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy and we will see you soon I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.